Hey, a couple things before I jump into this. Uh, first of all, you see we have a new series coming up. It's called Takeoffs, biggest thing I've ever been part of. But that'll start. <laughs> that'll start the first weekend in January. And I, I, I hinted at this a few moments ago. I said Christmas Eve is like a weekend for us. That means we won't have next weekend services. So if if you come next Sunday, it's going to be a real small gathering, just you in the parking lot with the others. Who uh, it'll be a wonderful prayer meeting, but. Uh, We'll be off next weekend, and then we'll be back with the new series. As I said a few moments ago, I, I didn't really plan to bring this talk. I, it started evolving in my thinking after last week's message. If you were here last week, it was a message about prophecy, and we talked about how that Jesus is coming again. And I share with you, if looking back 2,000 years to his birth is starting to get a little hazy, turn around, because we're much closer to his second coming. And the thing about his second coming is this. If, if I were to just like cut to the chase and, and give you the message in one sentence, it would be this. Jesus is coming again to fix a broken world. And I believe you believe that. If you're a God follower, I believe you believe that. But as I begin to think about that message, something hit me early in the week. I began to think about the New Springers who've had a really hard year. And I thought somebody could be asking the question that would go something like this. Mark, I agree with you that Jesus is coming back to fix a broken world. But how am I going to make it till then? Because I know some of you have lost loved ones this year, and you didn't see it coming. You had no warning. I know. I was there with you. Some of you have gotten health prognoses or health diagnoses from your doctor this year that you didn't see coming. And you're dealing with that diagnosis. I, after I, I had two services last night, and after I got home from our two services, there was an email to me, and my wife read it to me at breakfast this morning, where a lady said that yesterday she was served with divorce papers. And so I just began to think about that. And because of that, I want to talk to you today about a verse that I kind of opened the door to in week three in the message, I Don't Feel Mary. I want to talk to us about well, how are we going to make it till Jesus comes back and makes things right? Our series is called Holidays. You know, you know it's a play on words. A holiday means holy day. We talked about that in week one. Holy means that which is like God. So consequently, when we have a holiday, it is supposed to be a day that reminds us of God. But as we talked about in the first message, there are a lot of things about the holidays that aren't holy at all. In fact, they're more like a, a day's. And as I got ready for this talk, I did something I hadn't done for the previous talks. I, I looked up the word days in the dictionary. You know, of course, that days can be used either as a verb or a noun. And when I looked at the verb days as a verb, to daze someone, the idea carries with it to be stunned by a blow. I think that's when I really begin to think about the kind of talk I wanted to bring to you today. Because some of you have been stunned by a blow this year. It could be a career blow. It could be a the death of a loved one, it could be an illness, it could be the breakup of a relationship. But you made your way here today to New Spring, and I'm always amazed at how far people travel to be part of our services. You, you managed to get here today, but you would say, Mark, I'm really in a daze this holiday season because I was stunned by a blow. The verb can also mean to overwhelm, and I've had that feeling before. If you want to give words to the feeling of being overwhelmed, it would go something like this. If I had problems in one area of my life, I could handle it. If it was just in my career, that'd be okay. But to have problems in a career and with my health and with my relationships, 
I'm just overwhelmed. And maybe there's somebody like that here today. You're saying, Mark, I'm here. I'm sitting in a seat. I'm dressed well. If everybody looked at me, they would think there was nothing wrong with me. But the truth of the matter is, I'm, I'm overwhelmed. I'm at my wit's end. The noun, the noun days, <laughs> communicates this. It says it's a state of not being able to think as quickly or uh, as quickly or as well as normal. Is there anybody here today you're saying, Mark, I'm just not myself. There, there have been times when I was quicker, I could function better, but I'm not functioning very well right now. Well, with that in mind, let's, let's open up our dialogue with a question. Because I think every God follower here is going to have to deal with what appears to be the cognitive dissonance between a couple of facts. And the two facts go like this. Number one, God loves me and he has a plan for my life. I believe that. I believe that's true in my life. And I believe that's true in your life. I believe God loves you very much. And he does have a plan for your life. But the other fact is that bad things are going to happen. I have non-theist friends who argue that the second fact disproves the first. They'll say something like this. Mark, you say that you have a God who's all-powerful and all-loving. Well, bad things happen in your life. So either your God is not all-powerful and he can't stop bad things from happening. Or he's all-powerful but he's not loving enough. But you and I have the Bible. We have God's Word. We have all these stories in the Bible about people that God loved very much, like Job and Elijah and Mary, Jesus, that those two facts came into play. God loved them very much and had a plan for their lives, and still bad things happen. I'm just saying you and I are going to have to resolve that. We're going to have to at least, we're going to have to at least embrace that appearance of contradiction. God loves me, but bad things happen in our lives. I just believe there's something in the human spirit that's optimistic, at least early on. I don't know the psychology of it. I slept through too many psychology classes in college. But I just believe there is something within our psyche that believes that down the road, things are going to be better. You know, there's a place in life. I'm not there yet, but there is a place in life when at least I'm going to have equilibrium in all the key areas. I'm going to have money to pay my bills. I'm going to get married to somebody who loves me and is there for me. I'm going to have kids that make straight A's with straight teeth, and they're always going to make me proud. <laughs> I'm going to have a job that pays well, but not only does it pay well, there's a sense of mission, and I can't wait to go to work every day. I'm going to have friends that always love me and never misunderstand me. I'm going to have time to relax, and if I'm a God follower, I'm going to have a spiritual life that's dynamic and fulfilling. Somewhere out there is that life. But just keeping it straight, whatever our flaws are at New Spring, and they're myriad, they're many, we, we do try to be honest. How many of us live there? How many of us live in a place where all those things come together at the same time? I mean, for me, many of those things happen, but they just don't seem to happen all together at the same time. There seems to be something hanging out there that just doesn't work right. You know, when you're young, you're idealistic, and you feel like it's just right around the corner. When I'm old enough to drive, when I'm old enough to date, when I get in college, when I get out of college, when I get married, when I have kids, when my kids grow up and leave the house. I mean, it's like somewhere out there, there is going to be this wonderful life. And I'm not telling you what you don't know. In fact, I guess the argument could be made that I'm wasting your time with something that's so redundant. But the truth of the matter is, we all reach a place in life, no matter how optimistic we are, we reach a place in life where stuff happens, dreams fade Disappointments get hardwired in, and at some point we realize our dreams, the dreams, the plans that we had, our plans aren't going to materialize, our dreams are not going to come true. 
And often for those of us who are God followers, that causes us to open the Bible and begin to search for some kind of meaning or some kind of help or hope. And that search has led many of us to one of the most famous verses in the Bible. It's a verse that's it's not quite as famous as John 3.16, but it, it's getting pretty close up there. I mean, Mary Alice and I have it in a decal on our refrigerator, so I see that verse all the time, many times during the day. And some of you have it in artwork in your house. I, I was finishing the 4 o'clock service. I was walking out to sign devotionals, and, and a New Springer lady told me, she said, I have it tattooed on my arm. I'm not arguing for tattoos, but if you're going to get a verse tattooed on your arm, this would be a good one to have. <laughs> Here's the verse. It's a verse that says, God speaking, for I know the plans that I have for you. They are plans for good and not for disaster to give you a hope in the future. When I, when I sketched out holidays, I didn't plan to preach this message. In fact, I talked about this verse in week three. But after thinking about my consideration of those of you who might say, Mark, I got stunned with a blow, or I'm overwhelmed, or I'm not myself right now, even though we know Jesus is coming to fix our broken world, maybe we need to park here for a little while and ask the question, how are we going to make it until he does? God says, I know the plans that I have for you. Am I talking to anybody here today or watching online or watching on television who would say, Mark, if I believe that, I can make it through maybe. You know, I'm going to be honest with you. When I hear good news from the Bible, I have to really work on myself because I know how flawed I am. And when I hear a wonderful promise like that from the Bible, I'm thinking, am I sure that's for me? Maybe there are people here that that would be for. Or, you know, if I was better at this or if I was closer to God, maybe this would be for me. So is this a promise that's for me? And here's the thing. If you are a Bible student, you could say, hold on there, Mark. This verse is in the Old Testament, and I know it was given to the people of Judah. Fair question. So let's, let's go back in time for a few minutes and set up the dominoes, and let's see whether or not you and I can claim this verse. Because the fact of the matter is, there are people who can't claim Jeremiah 29, 11. And we'll see pretty quickly who they are. A little history. If you've heard me teach a lot through the years, you know that after Solomon died, the nation that we know of as Israel split into two nations. There was a northern kingdom, which was 10 of the tribes. There was a southern kingdom, which was two of the tribes. The southern kingdom was the more spiritual of the two by far. That's where Jerusalem was. The northern kingdom was known as Israel or Samaria, and the southern kingdom was known as Judah. So this particular verse that you and I read, Jeremiah 29, 11, was written to Judah. It was written to the southern kingdom. Now, if you have your Bible, you, or, or if you have a, a Bible program, you'll notice that there are two big prophetic books back-to-back -back in the Old Testament. Isaiah, 66 chapters, big book, great book. And then Jeremiah, also a very big book. And it can look like they happen either sequentially or maybe even contemporaneously. But there was about 100 years difference between Isaiah and Jeremiah. Let me tell you why that's salient to you and me as we explore this verse. Judah had begun to get into some idolatry. They had adopted some of the idolatrous practices of outside nations. And Jeremiah, a hundred years before, had told, excuse me, Isaiah had told them a hundred years before, if you don't stop your idolatry, God is going to let you go into captivity, but not just to anybody. God is going to let you go into captivity to the Babylonians. Well, if you ever study the Bible, you'll notice that there's this sort of constant running battle or distinction 
between two cities, between Jerusalem and Babylon. Jerusalem is always the city of God. Babylon is always the city of the devil, the anti-Jerusalem, if you will. And that goes back as far as Genesis, and it's also found in Revelation, because when the Bible talks about the last day kingdom of the Antichrist, it refers to it as Babylon. So, I'm just saying that so that you'll understand that when Jeremiah, excuse me, Isaiah said to the people of Judah, if you don't stop your idolatry, God is going to let you go into captivity, and not just to anybody, God's going to let you go into captivity to the Babylonians. And I think the people of Judah thought, you know, this is God trying to scare us. There's no way in the world he is going to let his beloved people in Jerusalem go into captivity to the Babylonians. But now that you have Jeremiah open 100 years later, when Jeremiah was writing, there was no doubt that it was getting close because the northern kingdom had already gone into captivity to the Babylonians, and the Babylonians were on the border of the southern kingdom. And Jeremiah was called on to write a very unpleasant message by God. Jeremiah was told to write, I mean, this is modern language. God was saying to Jeremiah, tell the people the train has left the station. They had a window of opportunity when they could have turned around, but the train has left the station. It's going to happen. It's going down. Babylon's coming. Judah's going into captivity. Now, a few moments ago, I shared with you that there are people that God's promise of Jeremiah 29, 11 is not for. Let me give you an idea of who those people are. And they could even be among us today. I don't think so, but maybe. In Jeremiah 18, 11 chapters before Jeremiah 29, 11, God says a message that seems to be the very opposite. He says, say to the people, this is what the Lord says, I'm planning disaster. Well, we know Jeremiah 29, 11 says that God is planning good and not disaster. But for these people, God, has said, God says, I'm planning disaster. So turn from your evil ways, each of you, and do what is right. But the people replied, don't waste your breath. One translation says, we don't care. We will continue to live as we want to, stubbornly following our own desires. I mean, basically, these are people, I mean, Babylon is on the border. They've already seen the northern kingdom go into captivity. And Jeremiah is pleading with them, turn from your wicked ways. And the people are flipping God off with both hands saying, we don't care what you've got to say. We're going to do what we want to do. I don't think anybody would be like that here today. But if, if you are, I want you to know Jeremiah 29, 11 is not for you. Well, who is it for? You're going to have to work with me a little bit before this makes sense. Let's start moving closer to Jeremiah 29, 11. We come now to chapter 21. God says, I'm setting before you the way of life and death. Okay, this is a two-answer, multiple-choice question. God is saying, do you want life? Do you want death? Okay, whoever stays in this city, that's Jerusalem, will die by the sword, famine, or plague. But whoever goes out and surrenders to the Babylonians who are besieging you will live. He will escape with his life. God said, I've determined to do this city harm, Jerusalem, and not good, declares the Lord. It will be given into the hands of the king of Babylon, and he will destroy it with fire. Now, if I'm Jeremiah, and again, this is all going to make sense in a minute. If I'm Jeremiah, I'm like rubbing my eyes and saying, excuse me, God, I'm getting old. Did I hear you right? I thought I heard you say, if anybody wants to live, they'll go out and surrender to the Babylonians. If they want to die, they'll stay in the city of Jerusalem. If I'm Jeremiah, I'm thinking it's just the opposite of that. 
I'm thinking God is going to say, if you want to live, stay in the holy city of Jerusalem. If you want to die, walk out and surrender to the Babylonians. But God is saying just the opposite. You know, life can turn upside down sometimes. And at that moment, down is up and up is down. Looking out over this audience, I realize almost all of you are too young to remember this. There was a movie back when I was a teenager called The Facade Adventure. Y'all are too young. But the, and I hope you're not going on a cruise this week now that I tell you this. <laughs> Poseidon Adventure is a story about a cruise ship that flips upside down. And a guy's leading a rescue party to get out of the ship. But he has the challenge of convincing them that up is now down and down is now up. And that's exactly what Jeremiah is having to do. It's the Poseidon effect. When life turns upside down, up is down and down is up. And so Jeremiah is saying, look, if you want to live, walk out and surrender to the Babylonians. That's, if, if you want to follow God, then do that. If you want to die, stay here in Jerusalem because things are going to go badly in Jerusalem. I know, I know. <laughs> That's ancient history. Well, let's bring this to 2015. The people, you put yourself in their place. The, the, the Jewish people who were walking out of Jerusalem to surrender to the Babylonians, they were going to live in Babylon. Everything they planned for their life is not going to come true, and they're going to find themselves living in a place they never thought they would be. Who am I talking to here today that you're in a place you never thought you would be? You thought your marriage would last forever. You thought if you took care of your body and ate healthy, you'd never get sick. You thought if you were a Christian and read your Bible, you'd never get an emotional disorder. You thought your kids would grow up and live out their training. You figured if you worked hard, you'd always have a well-paying job in your career field, but now your career field is dried up and blown away. And you find yourself living in a place you never dreamed you would be. Life just puts us in Babylon sometimes. It could be our fault. It could be somebody else's fault. It could be a combination. I don't know. Just Life just puts us in Babylon. We didn't think we'd live there. We never thought we would be there. But life just puts you in Babylon sometimes. What do you do when life puts you in Babylon? What do you do when you find yourself in a place where you never thought you would be? Hey, I don't want to make this personal, but I'm going to tell you what I do. I shut down. You know, when, when things are going according to my plans somewhat, I, I tend to function at a real high level. But all of a sudden, if I get stunned by a blow or I get overwhelmed, I can just freeze. And it's like, here's the thing. When, when I freeze, I'm waiting for things to change. It's like Mark has shut down, and when the world turns back right side up again, Mark will begin to function again. But as for right now, I'm just going to freeze. And I think that that's exactly what God knew that the people of Judah were going to do. Because they were going to say, surely God does not want us to live in Babylon. So what we're going to do is we're going to go over to Babylon. We'll be there a few days, a few weeks. God's going to do whatever he wants to do in Jerusalem. And then we're going to sit there and we're just going to wait by the phone. And we're going to wait for God to call and say the world is okay again. Or we're going to wait for the tornado sirens to quit sounding. Or we're going to wait for the all clear sound. And then after we freeze here in Babylon for a few days, we're going to go back home. We're going to get on with our lives. I 
How many of you have you discovered, like I've discovered, that one of the most unpleasant places in life to be is waiting by life's phone for life to change? Sitting by the phone waiting for somebody to love you again. Sitting by the phone waiting for someone to change. Just sitting by life's phone waiting for the world to change again. That's an awful place to be. Frozen. Now, with that in mind, I want you to look at the verses right before Jeremiah 29, 11, because they're going to explain everything to us. God now is going to talk to the people who have trusted him when he seems to make no sense. He is going to talk to the people who have walked out of Judah and walked into surrender to the Babylonians, who are tempted to freeze and wait for the world to change. This is where God is going to speak to them and where he's going to speak to you and me. Read with me, please. Verse 4. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives exiled to Babylon. Build homes. Excuse me? Build homes. You ever build a house? Six months? Nine months? A year? That could take a year. God is saying, build homes. Plan to stay. Plant gardens. Eat the fruit they produce. Marry and have children. God, that could be a five-year plan. Five years in Babylon? Man, God's just getting started. Have kids, find spouses for them. And then he says, have grandchildren. Multiply, do not dwindle away. And what had to freak most people from Judah out, God said, work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you in exile. Pray to the Lord for it. I mean, at this point, they're saying, God, you do understand the city you are sending us to is Babylon? And God is saying, yeah, I, I understand that. And he says, pray for it because its welfare will determine your welfare. All right, let's, let's sum this all up in our terms. Sometimes life puts you in a place you never thought you'd be. And probably most of us have the temptation to just freeze and wait for it to change. And God is saying, keep going. When you find yourself living in Babylon... You never thought you'd be there. God's saying, keep going. The first time I brought this message to you six years ago, I called it just function. God is saying, just function. Now, for somebody who's really suffered a hard blow this year, you could say, Mark, I, I'm, I'm, a little, I'm a little offended by that. I mean, because it sort of sounds to me like God is saying, look, when the going gets tough, the tough gets going. It's almost as if God is giving me a cosmic deal with it. Well, if that's where it stopped, I'd be the first to agree with you. But that's where Jeremiah 29, 11 comes in. Because after God tells them to build homes and plan to stay there and have kids and have grandkids, we have Jeremiah 29, 11. Most of us who read that verse, we want to go right into that part where God says, I know the plans that I have for you. But what's the first word of Jeremiah 29, 11? It's for. That's a synonym for Because. God is saying, look, go ahead and function. Go ahead and keep going. Go ahead and keep living because I know the plans I have for you. Guys, I'm always amazed, like I said, how, how far people drive to come to New Spring, sometimes 100, 200 miles. I don't know how far you had to drive here today, and I appreciate you coming. But let me just say this. However far you had to drive, what I'm about to say to you next is worth you coming today. At some point in your life, your plans are not going to work out. When that happens, your life is not over because God says, I know the plans, him speaking, I know the plans I have for you. When your plans fail, plans are not finished because God has plans for your life. 
Now, here's the thing. I love diving into this verse because, as you know, the Bible was not written in English. The Old Testament's written in Hebrew. New Testament's written primarily in Greek. And as one who loves to study those languages, oftentimes there are words in the original languages that don't translate very well into English. And one of those words is the word that we have there, the verb know. God says, I know the plans I have for you. What that word means is to know by seeing. Hey, there's some things I know are true because I've been told. There are things I know are true because I've studied. But there are times when I've seen things. Isn't it true that when you've seen something, there's a definitive nature about it that might not be in another context? Basically, you're saying, I know it. I saw it. But what's peculiar about this is God is speaking about the future. Like I said the other day, we don't know the future. We can't see the future. If you did, you could clean up on the football games today. But God is saying, look, I, I know the future. I know the plans that I have for you. My dad passed almost a couple years ago. Or actually, over a little couple of years ago now. He was here for a while, and some of you got to know my dad. There was no filter on my dad. What you saw was what you got. And that, that, it was never more fun than at Christmas time. Because my parents loved celebrating Christmas. They, they would start buying Christmas gifts early in the year. The Christmas tree was always up by Thanksgiving. And all the presents were wrapped and right there below the Christmas tree as soon as the season started. And my dad could never, he was so excited about what he bought me. He wanted me to open the present early. You know what I mean? It was sort of like it was this battle in his mind for me to wait. And I know that you're not going to ever believe anything like this of your pastor, but I frankly exploited that. <laughs> now, I could ask my mother, what's the gift? She'd shut me down and say, don't ask. But my dad was different. I mean, you know, it's like, Dad would be in there in the living room, and I'd walk in the Christmas tree, I'd pick up a present under the tree, and I'd sort of shake it a little bit, and I'd walk over to him, and I'd say something like this to Dad, say, this is the way we talked in Texas, reckon what's in here. And, and Dad would, he'd sort of giggle a little bit, and, and, and so I'd start asking questions, you know, I would work that, and, and frankly, I'd ask him questions about things I knew weren't in there, I just wanted to get him in the rhythm of answering my question, you know. And, and so I'd start probing. Is it this? Is it that? Is it this? And then if I started getting warm, I would see a little grin around the corner of his mouth. And then there would always be that moment I would guess it because he'd start giggling and he'd turn around and it would just freak my mother out because I'd wind up opening my presents on December the 6th, you know. <laughs> Here's why I bring that up. I believe if you could get a look at your heavenly father, he'd be the same way. Do you know my dad was smiling and grinning? He knew what he had in the box. To me, it was just a box wrapped in paper. But to dad, he bought it. He knew what he put in the box. And guys, you're here today, some of you, and you're saying, all my plans didn't come true and my life is over. But God is saying, I know the plans I have for you. I've seen them. If you could get a look at your heavenly father's face today, he would be smiling because he knows what's in the box. You're saying, my life is over, but that's because you, your plans have not come true. You don't know yet the plans God has for you. God says, I know. The, the other word that gets my attention is the word plans. Oh, gosh, at this moment, I wish I could be an engineer. If, you have, if, we have, if we have men and women who are engineers here today, I wish you could be up here because you could explain this so much better than I. Because the word plans, the closest word we have to it in English is machinations. God is saying, look, I know how the engine, I've seen the engineering. 
You know, here's the thing. For many of us, if we, could, if we saw familiar machinery that we use every day, but if we could see it in pieces, if we could just see it in parts lying on the floor, a lot of us would say, I don't know what that is. It doesn't make any sense. But we'd just be looking at parts. But an engineer who'd who crafted those parts or who designed those parts or who assembled those parts, an engineer could look at it and tell us exactly what's there because she or he sees how the engineering works. How many times have I looked at my life and it made zero sense at all? Like James Taylor said, sweet dreams and flying machine and pieces on the ground, that's what my life felt like. And you've got to say, Mark, I've seen your future. I, I know the engineering. I, I did the engineering. I know how the parts work together. There are a couple of verses I think about nearly every day of my life. These two verses have helped me navigate and understand puzzling circumstances in my life so often. I mentioned Isaiah a few moments ago. In Isaiah 55, 89, Isaiah says this, or speaking for God. God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. And my ways are not your ways. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so much higher are my ways than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, guys, if I just left you with that, that's an that's awesome text. But honestly, we haven't even gotten into unpacking it yet. This is what, I'm going to tell you what makes these verses so special to me. If you want to know what God means when he says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, what God is saying is, the way I assemble things is not the way you assemble things. And when he says his ways are not our ways, he's saying his schematics are not our schematics. Now, if you're building anything today, or if you're doing any kind of engineering, you have a plan, like some of you are going to be putting together things, assembling things for Christmas. You're going to open the plan, and then you're going to put the pieces together. And that's what God's talking about here. God is saying, look, my, my, my set of plans is not the set of plans that you're working on. God is saying, you're playing checkers, I'm playing 3D chess. My, my plans are higher than your plans. And then, this is the part that I really, this has meant so much to me through the years. God is saying, look, Mark, even if you got to the place where you figured out my plans, I'm still going to put the pieces together differently than you would put the pieces together. Every once in a while, somebody will say, Mark, did you ever, could you ever, when you were a young teenage preacher, did you ever see yourself doing what you do today? The answer to the question is, yeah, I did. I mean, I always had a sense that I was going to get to be part of a great church in, in a little bit of an unusual place, not necessarily a Bible Belt place. I, I thought it was going to be the West Coast. So, yeah, I mean, did I get a sense of God's plan for my life? Yeah, I did. But I got to tell you, he put the pieces together in the most convoluted of ways. God took me through what looked like 10 or 12 dead-end streets to get me here. And all I'm saying is this. God's plan isn't going to look like your plan. And even if you figure out his plan, he's going to put the pieces together in a way that's going to baffle you. I've always said this through the years. 
I'm always great at seeing God out my rearview mirror. It's seeing him out my windshield that's the trouble. And what I mean by that is a lot of times following God makes all the sense in the world when I look back on what he's done in my life. But when I'm looking forward, sometimes it doesn't make any sense. But he says, I know the plans I have for you. And they're not plans to destroy you. They're plans to give you a hope in a future. If you're here today and you're saying, Mark, my world is blown up. I was stunned with a blow I didn't see coming. I'm overwhelmed. I'm not myself right now. I want you to know that your life is over because your plans didn't materialize, because God has plans for you. And on top of that, God is at work. He's machining the pieces. He knows how to put the pieces together, and he can deliver his plans. And you will look back and say, I am so glad I was on God's schematic and not mine. As I close this talk, <laughs> let me say this. None of us will ever understand God coming to him with our own reasoning. Through the years, people have brought questions to me. Why is God like this? And basically they're saying, I think like this. Why doesn't God think like this? Well, God said right up front, he doesn't think like we think. But who among us could have ever come up with a plan of salvation? By that, I mean, if you're the plan of salvation, I'm just talking about the way to go to heaven. I mean, who, who, among, of us, who among us would have thought it up on our own? I, I can tell you what I think 99% of us would have done if, we, if somebody came to us and said, okay, figure out a way for flawed, broken people to go to heaven. I might have said, okay, if those flawed, broken people will straighten up and start doing better and do more good things than bad things, maybe they can go to heaven. Or I'm going, to, I'm going to make a religion. I'm going to make a particular religion. And if people go to that particular religion, they can go to heaven. And I know that's what most people would have thought up because that's what a lot of people think. That's how you go to heaven. But what did God say? He said his calculus is higher than ours. So what did he do? He brought his son into the world so that his son could be God and human at the same time. He ran the table for 33 years. He never committed a sin, took that perfect record, laid it on a Roman cross, hung between heaven and earth for six hours. And the way God looked at it, when he got through, the blood that came out of his body was a currency that paid for our sins. So that anybody, anywhere, no matter what he or she has done, who will put faith and trust in Jesus Christ and let him pinch, hit, and pinch, run for you, if, if anybody will come and believe in him, Jesus says, or God says, you can be forgiven and have a relationship with him. Now, who would have ever thought of that? <laughs> so different from us. It's just God. It's just God. Let me do something. I know I'm out of time here today, but before I leave this stage, I just want to take a moment and ask you, in this Christmas season, have you ever put your trust in Jesus? You could say, Mark, I, maybe I thought it was living a better life and I can't ever seem to get there. Or I thought it was joining a church, but I don't know which church to join. Well, isn't it good news to know that no church can get you, no, I mean, no, none of Wichita's churches can get you out of Sedgwick County when you die, including New Spring. Isn't it good to know that God loves you unconditionally and Jesus paid for your sins? And no matter what you've done wrong, you can come to him by faith and ask him to forgive you and receive him as your Savior and Lord. And you can go to heaven, have a relationship with God. Hey, let me do this. Let me pray a prayer with you. And these aren't magic words, but if you want to say these words to God, I'll, I'll say these slowly so that you can decide whether you want to say them. You can pray your own prayer. God's just looking for a big yes.
But if you want help in praying this prayer, let me pray it with you. Dear God, I'm a sinner. I've done many wrong things. I do many wrong things. But I believe you love me. I believe you made a way for me to go to heaven. I believe Jesus died for my sins. I believe he arose in the grave. And because he's alive, I want him as my savior and king. I don't understand everything, but I trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if you just prayed that prayer with me, I know we're crowded, but I'd love to give you a gift. It's got a DVD in it and a book I wrote that will answer a lot of questions and a coupon for a new Bible. All you got to do is go back to guest services and say, I prayed with Mark. There's another one back by the coffee shop. I'd love to give you this gift. Please come get it today. And I promise you, they won't hassle you. They just want to give this to you. Thanks for being here. I'll see you Christmas Eve. God bless.